Since I moved to London, there have been two times when I have felt entirely stupid on the tube. I'm only going to tell you one of them, because I might use the other one sometime. But the time that matters here for us tonight is I was sitting across from this man on the tube, and I was watching him repeatedly and quickly solve this Rubik's Cube puzzle in like 15 minutes. So so most of you know, if you don't know, a Rubik's Cube is, is the little box with different colored tiles on each side, and you, you rearrange it, you twist it around, trying to get all the sides to have the same color. So you move them so that each side matches. I have yet to solve one once in my life. And this guy is doing it over and over and over fast on this train. Now, okay, the reason I mention this, why it's relevant at all for us tonight, is that the point of a Rubik's Cube is to get the pieces in order, right? And when I came to the text of Micah 7, I felt a lot like I was coming to a a Rubik's Cube. There's just several pieces of this chapter. You can break it down in, into little bits. And it is a feat, I think, to relate them in the right way, especially. So Micah changes topics several times, at least changes focus within this passage. And it, a unifying theme sort of seems elusive. But, okay, how do we make sense of it then? The whole of Micah's collection of sermons has developed the theme, themes of doom and deliverance. Hence the chapter, or the title of the series. Chapters one to three compose that book of doom, wherein Micah increasingly pronounced destruction upon God's covenanted nation for violating their national covenant with God. Then, though, Micah changed gears in chapters 4 and 5, that book of visions where he proclaimed how God will restore his people in the future. And the certainty of these future blessings was meant to instill present hope for his people. And now, though, we're in this last section of Micah's collected sermons, chapters 6 and 7, called the Book of Contentions. So, what do we do with chapter 7? Well, we we have to think about what we did last time with chapter 6, where we saw Micah explicitly adopt this role of the covenant lawyer. He, He prosecuted God's indictment against his rebellious people and detailed the case against them and the coming sentence upon their guilt. Now, as we come to this chapter, Micah 7, we see that Micah responded to the previous proceedings from that courtroom showdown between God and his people. So, the main point we dive into this, the main point is that when God's people are surrounded by godlessness, we still have to look to God in trust. 
When God's people are surrounded by godlessness, we must still look to God in trust. We're going to think about this in three points. The foundation, the failure, and the fulfillment. So, the foundation first. Okay, perhaps you remember way back... A while ago, when we studied Micah 1, we considered how that text pointed us to one of God's attributes. Namely, we thought there about God's impassibility, or the fact that God does not undergo emotional change, but He determines how He will manifest Himself in relation to His creatures according to His good pleasure. We're not going to rehash all that, so don't don't worry Uh, I just wanted us to remember that we began seeing how this book points us above the historical context to God's own character. That's the point. And Micah 7 invites that same approach to point ourselves again to God's character. This one is not as complex, though, or even as unfamiliar. Before we turn to that, though, to consider God's attributes... We need to outline the text, as usual. Now, this is debated. So I, I am going to give you what I think is clearest. The passage has two major parts. Again, the whole chapter, so the whole chapter is Micah's response to the courtroom showdown of God against Israel that ended with their sentencing. So then, in verses 1 to 6 here, Micah lamented the condition in which he found Israel. And then in verses 7 to 20, Micah looked to God in trust for the future. This passage, therefore, moves from remorse over the state of godlessness to hope in God's promises for the future. That's the pattern. In this way, though, if you think about this, how I've just tried to review the book, that movement from remorse to hope, ties together the major themes of the whole book, doom to deliverance. Now, we turn to focus on how this text points us to God himself, to think more about God's attributes. So, we're going to start at the end. So, read with me verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Okay, maybe it's odd, maybe it seems odd to you to start with the final verses, but we should recognize, here's here's the point I want to make, these verses are the culmination of Micah's reflections in this chapter. So everything that precedes this led into this exclamation of God's glory. 
Micah here extolled God like unlike any other being. He is above and better than everyone, everything else. As Micah asked, who is like you? Micah, though, was clear about, he didn't leave that vague. He told us why God is the superior being, why we should think of God as above all things. God is forgiving. God is not simply forgiving, though. He is committed to forgiving His people. Micah's confidence that God would forgive was founded on God's promises. Note really carefully verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah knew God had made promises. He knew then that the unchanging God who cannot lie cannot break promises. So his confidence was founded in that. Sometimes Scripture references to people like Abraham and Jacob represent the whole people, the nation. But here, the individual Abraham and Jacob are in view. Now, here's the thing. You may not find that... we Those names are dropped a lot in Scripture. So you may not find those references odd at first glance or even noteworthy. But think about it for a moment. What it, What is he saying here? Micah said that God would show faithfulness to Jacob and show love to Abraham. Micah said that God would show this goodness through his actions in the 700s B.C., which was a long time after these guys had died. So this means that if God would be good to Jacob and Abraham, funny enough, they need to be alive, at least in some sense. And so that should make us think of Jesus' words in Mark 12. 26 and 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Micah, here in this passage, thought Jacob and Abraham still live. Obviously not in earthly bodies, but in heaven with God. And God was going to be good to them by honoring His promises to them. Now, okay, here's where I think it gets good, I hope. This is the encouraging bit for me. Lots of people think that The Old Testament promises were merely earthly in scope. 
You might hear that God's promises to these patriarchs focused on the land and earthly goods. You might even hear that the Apostle Paul, this is not our view, but you might hear that the Apostle Paul took too many liberties when he universalized the promises to Abraham in Romans 4 or spiritualized them by making them about justification by faith alone in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. But what does Micah tell us here in verses 18 and 19? He tells he tells us in the Old Testament, in this prophetic book, that God will keep His promises to Abraham and Jacob by restoring a relationship with His people. He's going to forgive sins. And that's how He's going to be faithful and good to Abraham. He will take your sins and cast them into the sea like He did with Pharaoh and his army as they pursued after God's people to ruin them. So this Old Testament prophet did not think that God's covenant with Abraham was about a simple plot of earth. He thought it was about the forgiveness of sins. The ultimate blessing of eternal life. It was about a restored relationship between God and His people. God's unchanging commitment to be that forgiving God who accepts His people by faith is the reason that Micah erupts in this section of praise. Despite Israel's continued failure, God will reclaim a people for Himself by erasing sins. He will do so through the promised Savior King from Micah 4 and 5. Micah grounded his confidence that God would rescue His people in God's own character though. In the fact that God, the true God, is better than all other beings because He is the God who has promised to redeem His people. The foundation of hope is God's unchanging and incomparable character. His faithfulness since God has promised to act for His people. That brings us to our second point, the failure. Okay, in the last point we considered how the end of Micah 7 directs us to think about God's own character, His attribute of unchangeability, which means He is dependable. That's why that's an important attribute. He is dependable. He is faithful. And that is the reason we should learn to apply hope even in our most desperate times. That's where this is going. In this point, we look at how we have a tendency to neglect that exact thing, to to apply God's faithfulness to our seemingly desperate times. Okay, so we find in verses 1 to 6 that Micah lamented over the condition of his people in the wake of their conviction in the trial that took place in Micah 6. 
Okay, so we, we can summarize verses one. There's a lot there, but we have to summarize it. So those verses are an account of when Micah walked through the garden that represented his people and he noticed the nation was barren. There was no fruit of godliness among God's people. Verses 1-3. Instead, even the very best of them were no better than briars and thorn bushes. Verse 4. And the people of his day should not even trust their own neighbors, friends, and family members who were fighting each other. Verses 5 and 6. And so we ought here to think of Mark 11 and how Jesus... Do you notice He's looking for fruit, Micah, and He can't find one fig for eating. And people think that the narrative of Jesus cursing this fig tree has this passage in view as Jesus went about his actions there. So Jesus comes across this barren fig tree, which had leaves, meaning that its leaves claimed it was full of fruit. And the tree there represented the nation of Israel and how they adorned themselves in lavish ritual, but were without any spiritual fruit. We ought also to think, of a passage like Hebrews 6. And how the blessings of being in the covenant community fall on all the people in the church, but in various cases produce either crops of useful fruit or the same blessings produce thorns and thistles. In Micah's day, covenantal blessings produced the predominant crop of thorns. And no doubt, Micah's sentiment rings true to your own assessment of our time. Whether we look widely at the culture or narrowly at the church, we we see the world around us is full of rampant godlessness, People are polarized against each other and demonize those who disagree with them politically and ideologically. The world at large calls good evil and evil good. And we, too, do and ought to lament about that. And we can see some of the same of that even in the church itself. Now, I hope we're all agreed that the free church and and other conservative reformed churches are on basic paths of faithfulness to the Lord. I do want to be clear about that. But if we look wider than some of our narrowly reformed network, we, we see that the predominant expression of Christianity is oftentimes the prosperity gospel or televangelists who fake miracles to drum up money or liberalizing strands which say that claim that Jesus condones every sinful thing you wish to do simply because he loves people so deeply. 
And so we can sympathize, right, with Micah's first lament? But in verse 7, Micah redirected his focus from his lament to his hope. But as for me, in contrast to the godless world around him, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. You already hear the resonances from this morning, right? My God will hear me. He contrasted himself with the society at large and settled himself to pursue God despite what everyone else was doing. And this contrast between Micah and the world at large gave rise to his inspired proclamation against those who opposed him in verse 8. So he says to his enemy, so he's, he announces his confidence in God, and then he speaks to his enemy, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise again. When I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And then verses 9 to 13 can, to summarize there, those verses continued Micah's rejoinder against the godless world, reminding them that even though he endures difficulty for the failure of others, God will come up against them and God will restore his true people and even more than that, make desolate those who oppose them. Now, we need to get practical and personal about this. So, biblical Christians are good at joining Micah in verses 1 to 6. You know what I mean? We, we note well society's ills and even those ills of the wider church. We can also be good even at joining Micah in verse 7 by committing personally to follow the Lord. But, are we good at joining Micah in verses 8 to 13 where he actually believed that God would overcome his enemies? Do we actually believe that God will achieve a good end result for His people. As was pointed out in some ways this morning, I, I hear a lot less confidence like Micah's than worry over what everyone else out there may do. Did Micah keep focus on what he might endure? Did he speculate about future troubles? Or did he state God's promises and pray them back to the unchanging God who is faithful? And so, to double down on an application from 
this morning, if we're worried so much about out there, how much are we praying about it? If you're worried, you should be praying. And if you're reading scripture, we should probably worry less. Read verses 14 to 17 with me. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the, I mean, the, the preeminent curse, right? From Genesis 3, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. That is how God's people should sound. Confident in what the Lord our God can do. Micah here called God to shepherd His people, to honor His promise. The promises that God willingly made. As He had done when he saved Israel from Egypt and to do so by going up against his enemies. He knew that God had committed to do good to his people. And so God, true people should expect, ask and it shall be given. God's true people should expect to see that happen. How well do we put that into practice? Do we, do we stand on Jesus, not in a vague general way? Do we stand on Jesus' promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church? Or do we take that seriously? Or do we think we have limited time before we are overshadowed by the world? And I just say, Christians, let us renew our trust that God will act. We, we, we can believe in total depravity and still maintain a positive outlook that God, who brings all things to pass, can bring good things to His people who pursue Him. They are compatible. The failure is that we believe that the world can actually overcome God's promises. Brings us to think about our third point, the fulfillment. So we've, we've looked at how Micah founded his trust in God's future blessings on God's unchanging character and how God had promised blessings to his people. And then we thought about how, how many times we as the church fail to maintain 
Micah's godly optimism. That doesn't have to be naive, but some sort of godly optimism concerning how God can bring good to his people. And now perhaps the, here's the, so perhaps you've noticed that we have discussed already to some degree or other all the verses in Micah 7. So, so what is left for us to do? And what I want to do for just a moment is think about how we fit into Micah's book. We're here at the end. It's been a good ride for me, I hope for you. But we need to put the pieces together some. Because in some ways, it would be easy for us to feel massively disconnected from Micah's world and context. Right? We're not looking down the barrel of an Assyrian invasion. And we don't have God's promises to bless our specific country in the future. Yet, even though God did overthrow the nations that exiled Israel, as as Micah foretold, still we know that some of the promised blessing for eternal and complete peace were never entirely realized. So then, Micah found himself in a culture that rebelled against God. He was almost alone in his commitment to pursuing godliness, waiting in hope for the fulfillment of God's promises. Maybe, perhaps that sounds familiar to you. We too endure the trials of this age as we wait for the completion of God's promises. And we too call upon God for forgiveness, but also to honor His promises to give a kingdom of peace to His people. From the spiritual perspective, the world remains largely the same as it was for Micah. If you feel overwhelmed and abandoned by a godless society, then the book of Micah is for you. If you cry out in hope to the living God who has promised blessings to his people, then the book of Micah is for you. This book asks us, demands that we consider, though, where we stand. Micah first trumpeted destruction upon those who trample God's commands. And so, if you are not a Christian, then that is your future. When the prophesied king returns to install his kingdom in full, he will find you to be his enemy. And it is the book of doom that foretells how God will treat you.
But Micah also foretold the messianic king who rescues his people despite their sin. Here in Micah 7, we have seen him again cry to God to shepherd his people. We have heard of the one who must stand and bear the transgressions of God's people. And so, the obvious question is where do you stand? Do you stand outside God's people and so have broken His covenant? If that's the case, then now is the time to see that you need God to be your shepherd and not your judge, lest you be condemned. And in fact, we all need God to be our shepherd. For we know, ultimately, we are no better than those people whom God finds to be briars and thorns. We have mutilated God's blessings just as they did. We need that Redeemer King. God has given us that in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God who came to this earth so that He might reclaim His people. He does that through the Gospel. He walked the earth as the perfect man who earned heaven as the good shepherd of His flock. He died on the cross to blot out your transgressions as the shepherd who laid down His life for His sheep. He rose from the grave to show that no curse of exile and death can hold those united to the righteous Son of God so that He might lead us to eternally green pastures. Just as was the case in Micah's day when the world at large loomed against God's people, so now, in the same way, must we take hold of our Savior to find our true hope and rescue, who is the fulfillment of all God's promises. It is in this reality, that fact, that caused Micah to praise God's character in verses 18 to 20. And it is that fact that should cause us to do the same. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks for this book. We're grateful that even though it is tucked in the back of our Old Testament and so many leave it overlooked and dusty, that in it we find ourselves. That just as Micah had to stand against a godless world in trust in your precious promises, and you were faithful to him, so too we find ourselves in need to trust your promises and give thanks that you are faithful to us. And so we pray that you would remind us of that truth in a way that fuels our hearts 
that overcomes the lament we might have about the things we see around us. And that gives us confidence in who you are and what you will do for us. Give us strength. Give us joy as we walk in this world. And give us courage as you gave Micah to proclaim these precious and wonderful truths. And we ask these things for the sake of Christ. Amen.